Good afternoon. On behalf of Ed Nersessian, Director of Helix, the Helix Center, I welcome you to the first of our season, the second Zoom year in our COVID period. Um, we have gone ahead this year and scheduled some marvelous programs that I just want to mention to you so you can mark them down. Um, in February, February 26th, we'll be having one on kinetic economics, which will discuss what, how we are affected in an international global trade world that when goods can't move. March 12th, we'll have a program on psychedelics, April 30th on metaphysics, and May 4th on flourishing versus languishing. So just um, consider us on those dates. And for today, we're very happy to have you join us for designer genes, as in G-E-N-E-S. And we have a wonderful group who are going to be with us today. And um, let me introduce a few of you. We're having a little bit of problem with, with the Zoom, but some you may hear phoning in and some are present here. Henry Greeley is the Edelman Johnson Professor of Law at the Genetic Center at the Center for Law and Biosciences at Stanford. He specializes in ethical, legal, and social issues arising from the biosciences. And you can read online all his incredible distinguished accomplishments. Robert Klitzman, we are hoping, will be able to join us. He's professor of psychiatry at the College of Physicians and Surgeons and the Joseph Mailman School of Public Health, and the director of the online and in-person bioethics master's and certificate program at Columbia University. Varda Ravitsky, here she is, um, is a full professor at the bioethics program at the School of Public Health, University of Montreal and senior lecturer on global health and social medicine at Harvard Medical School. Her research covers a variety of topics such as public funding of intrauterine IVF, the use of surplus frozen embryos, posthumous reproduction, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, and many other related focuses. And Nathaniel Comfort, is here as professor of history of medicine at Johns Hopkins. His interest lies in the history of genetics, eugenics, genomics, and biomedicine, as well as bioethics. And you can read of his other accomplishments and publications on the website. So I welcome you all. We've, we've had a little bit of Zoom entanglement. And so we hope the difficulties are over and from here on in, it will be very compelling. So Jerry Horowitz, who is the co-director of the Helix Center, will now moderate. Thank you, Jerry. And Jerry uh -huh. is from Columbia University, professor of psychiatry. Thank you, Beverly. This is very exciting, made even more exciting by the late uh, appearance of two of our esteemed panelists. This is great. Thank, 
thank you to Miguel and to Alex for getting this all done just at the last moment. Anyway, I, I'm eager to let the panelists begin their conversation um, on today's topic. I want to point out that questions can be submitted on Zoom and also um, through YouTube that will be collected by our administrator, Alex. And uh, he will read them out or read out a selection of them at the end of our conversation. And so just bear in mind that they will be collated and uh, referred to later. Anyway, with no further ado, Hank Greeley in advance uh, uh, agreed to sort of start things off and give us a sort of an overview of this topic. And then we'll see how the conversation proceeds from there. Hank? Okay, well, thank you. Happy to be here, wherever here is in cyberspace. Uh, it was almost exactly three years ago, three years and a week ago, when I was shocked one Sunday evening by an email from a friend, the title of which was CRISPR Babies. He was reporting on the then leaked report that a Chinese scientist named Hu Zhangkui, or something close to that, uh, had announced the birth of twin girls whose embryos had been edited using a process called CRISPR, clustered regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats, which is a real good reason to use the acronym and just call it CRISPR, uh, and had been born uh, that year. Uh, this caused a huge uproar. Uh, ultimately, I think uh, Dr. He, expected to be hailed as a hero, ended up getting denounced as a villain and ultimately sentenced to three years in prison in China. But that's the, that's the most recent of many interesting things that have gone on with human reproduction at the intersection of human reproduction and genetics. We can go back 50 years or so to when we started doing prenatal genetic testing through a process called amniocentesis. After the birth of Louise uh, Roberts, uh, the, the first uh, IVF baby, uh, we started having more possibilities, and we can go back 30 years to the birth of the first child who was born after a procedure called preimplantation genetic diagnosis, where embryos created through IVF, so outside the woman's body, are genetically tested. That child is 31 years old. I had the good fortune of talking to the uh, reproductive endocrinologist who was involved in her birth, and he's so proud of the fact that she's now a scientist. Uh, I keep telling him it didn't have anything to do with him or his genes, and he just smiles. Uh, and now things have gotten more complicated. We have embryo selection through PGD. We have fetal selection through prenatal diagnosis. We have embryo selection through preimplantation genetic diagnosis, which I'm just going to call PGD. And starting three years ago, we have embryo editing through CRISPR editing of embryos with at least three cases. Dr. Hood did at least... Led, Dr. Ho's work led to the birth of at least three babies before he was stopped and ultimately imprisoned. These options are continuing, they're growing, there are new possibilities like mitochondrial replacement therapy, and there are new possibilities coming from the genetics world, including some new efforts to try to figure out more meaning from genes, particularly a process that is quite controversial, a procedure that's quite controversial called probabilistic risk scores. So all of these are going on. The one thing that I think uh, is clear is that at least in places and for people with access to 
good healthcare, modern healthcare, and money to pay for it. Uh, genetics is playing an increasing role in how we're having our babies. So I think between prenatal diagnosis, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, and embryo editing, those are the three main steps that we need to think about in conjunction with how much or how little we know about what the DNA sequences actually mean. And I'll stop there. Excellent. Thank you, Hank. I think uh, you've raised so many interesting, and uh, I would dare say these are all touching on our sort of uh, eth ethical sense, each one of them. I wonder if we could, uh, and I also just, I just want to add very quickly, I'm always, I want to try to keep you honest in this sense. I've always loathed the expression, you know, these are complex moral issues because I find that sort of as a hand-waving gesture. I'd like to get down more into nitty gritty of how they are morally complex. So I invite any of the rest of the panelists to start in with any one of these topics and let's see how far we can go with it. Robert? Yeah, so uh, first of all, thank you again to the organizers for planning this. And it's great to see my colleagues and have a chance to interact with them this afternoon on this very important topic. So I'm honored to be here and thank you again. And Hank, thank you for laying out uh, some of the background and the issues. Uh, I think there's a few uh, things I should say. One is just as a little bit of background, uh, so we don't demonize the technology entirely. Uh, the ability to edit genes, I should say, does offer potential benefits for living people. In other words, there, we, there are now clinical trials being done of gene therapies, and my scientist friends who are, uh, work on this are uh, emphasized that uh, we don't want to uh, shut down all research using this CRISPR technology that Hank so eloquently presented. But it's important that, that is, in other words, for instance, for Alzheimer's disease, for people who are already born who have Alzheimer's, they have the genes that they're going to have. Uh, there are the potentials to use uh, CRISPR, these so-called sort of genetic scissors, to cut out bad genes, for instance. And so there's a potential to use this for disease that could benefit large numbers of people, also for improving food, improving crops, livestock, making uh, food that's resistant to pests, for instance. So just as a background, um, uh, I think it's important to mention that. The area I think where we're all concerned, of course, is using these technologies to alter future human beings. That is to uh, take when uh, uh, sperm meets egg and forms an embryo and eventually would form uh, two cells and four then eight and eventually become one of us, uh, when it's still at the one embryo stage, we can go in, as Hank was saying, and alter the genes. Uh, and uh, this is what Dr. He uh, did. Uh, and I think, uh, as Hank and my fellow panelists know, uh, the problem is it's not quite ready for prime time in addition to all the other ethical problems. So in answer to your question, there is a lot of risks involved, basically, uh, is number one. So Dr. Hu apparently took out more DNA than he wanted to. Uh, and so there are so-called off-target effects. I may want to just take out this much DNA and end up taking that much. Also, genes probably have multiple functions in the body. So one gene, uh, he actually... Uh, wanted to disable the so-called CCR5 gene that uh, would allow HIV uh, to get into cells. So he disabled that gene, but by disabling that gene, uh, the child has a higher risk of having other viruses, uh, influenza virus, West Nile virus getting into cells. Uh, uh, and uh, in addition, uh, 
uh, he took out too much and genes may that one gene may do other things as well that we're not even aware of yet. So there's a lot of risks involved. Uh, and a problem is that uh, uh, we may, we now live in a globalized world. And so even though there have been attempts in the US and in Western Europe to come up with guidelines by the National Academy of Sciences and the uh, Royal Academy of Science, the Royal Scientific Society Association in uh, Great Britain. Uh, uh, it's not clear what kind of enforcement ability, if any, or what kind of power such guidelines put out uh, by such international organizations will have. Clearly we need to try to have such uh, uh, guidelines, but uh, the UN, of course, doesn't do, do, is very important, doesn't manage to prevent all the wars that go on. And so the possibility of a rogue scientist like Dr. He uh, in fill in the blank of whatever country outside Western Europe you want to think of, Russia, uh, North Korea, might go ahead and use this. So there, there are questions about uh, international uh, um, uh, oversight and ability to sort of control what's going on. And then and lastly, I'll just make uh, the point that as uh, Hank really mentioned uh, with uh, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, uh, we in the US have a basically unregulated assisted reproductive technology industry. It's a multi-billion dollar industry that uh, allows many people to have children who are infertile, but uh, uh, these technologies are being used to, for instance, give people just a boy child if they want a boy child, or uh, we're now being able to uh, prevent uh, uh, the breast cancer mutation, other mutations that we know about from being transmitted to future generations. Uh, but this is a technology that wealthy people can use, but not poor people. So there are questions of justice that we're uh, beginning and will begin to see diseases like breast cancer increasingly become diseases of the poor because wealthy people as we go into the future will be able to afford to prevent such diseases from being transmitted that those genes. So just to highlight some of the sort of uh, ethical complexities involved sort of drilling down a little bit. Uh, so I think uh, it's great to have this discussion because I think awareness, public awareness of these issues is really crucial. Hey, Vardit, you had something to say? Yeah, because the points I wanted to make uh, follow uh, beautifully uh, from exactly the points Robert just made, which are that regardless of which technology we're using, regardless of whether we're editing embryos in vitro or selecting embryos in vitro, or selecting against certain fetuses through prenatal testing. Um, I think that one of the uh, key ethical challenges is why are we doing that? What is it that we're keeping and what is it that we're rejecting from the human gene pool? Uh, or what kinds of individuals we would like to welcome into our future society? And uh, what kind of individuals we're uh, practically uh, avoiding having? Um, so I want to uh, offer my comments through a critique of the title of this event, Designer Genes, because I get phone calls from journalists every week uh, to talk about these technologies, to talk about the ethical and social dimensions of these technologies. And what do they all want to talk about? Designer babies. You know, I, I don't like designers in any field of life, uh, but when you take the concept of designer and attach it to the baby, I think um, this is dangerous because I think it gets a lot of public attention and a lot of our social discourse and social debate that we should have urgently into the wrong direction.
Mm -hmm. uh, what do I mean? Everybody's scared of having, um, so, so here's what's going on in the media, right? In the public imagination. We're gonna have super intelligent babies. We're gonna have tall babies. We're gonna have blue eyes and blonde hair, which I always take offense because, you know, me, <laughs> uh, why, why nobody wants to have. Um, we're scared of enhancement. We're scared of uh, sort of selecting traits of future people um, in areas that have nothing to do with all the good stuff Robert talked about, which is avoiding disease and preventing uh, suffering and preventing early death. We're afraid of going in the direction of sort of designing human beings, but I think it's misguided to dedicate so much attention to it because we scientifically still don't know how to do that. Those traits that everybody's so worried about, intelligence, height, sexual orientation, uh, they're controlled by many genes. They're controlled by interactions between genes and they're controlled by the interactions between our genomes and the environment through epigenetics and other processes. Even if we wanted to create a beautiful basketball player, we don't know how to do that. At the same time, we're spending so much energy discussing this instead of discussing the really urgent question, which is within the, um, the area of medical uses, what is justified? So all these um, declarations and policy statements that Robert just mentioned tell us that if we ever move forward responsibly with CRISPR that Hank explained, we should only do it for serious genetic diseases. And nobody to date has defined what is a serious genetic disease. And I want the public conversation to be on that because that is a question we're facing right now. Uh, he gave the twins resistance to the HIV virus. Is that serious enough to justify putting them at risk? Another uh, Russian scientist now wants to edit out the gene that causes hereditary deafness. Is that serious enough? How do we understand as a society what is a serious disease that we all agree we'd rather not see in our children? We haven't actually had the deep conversation on that, and that conversation is urgent, whereas those designer genes uh, are definitely not urgent because we don't know how to do it now, and potentially we'll never know how to do it. So these are my two cents. Well, you know, you might be unhappy to understand that uh, an alternative title for our talk today was going to be cosmetic uh, genetics. Uh, yeah, no, it's a it was intended to be a slightly polemical title to uh, get, gather in the, both the serious part of this problem that you're highlighting really perfectly well, and the fact that some of it gets appropriated for other uses. Um, Nathaniel, I wonder if you have any comments on that, or uh, you want, what did you want to add? Sure, thank you. First, uh, hello to everyone. It's wonderful to be here. Um, and actually, I can follow on uh, Vardit's really thoughtful uh, commentary with a, with a couple of things, bringing a little bit of a historical perspective to, to the conversation. Um, I completely agree um, with the, all the remarks so far that uh, CRISPR has many important uh, medical medical applications and it's already had uh, some, some real medical benefits. It became almost almost overnight, it became a standard workhorse laboratory technique, you know, just basic research. Everybody was doing it, it's cheap, it's easy. Um, so yeah, we need to be sure to differentiate between the, um, the, the really kind of workaday use of, of, 
uh, of CRISPR just in doing it, all kinds of biomedical laboratory research and these kinds of sci-fi scenarios and and um, and and huge ethical issues that uh, that are raised with things like um, prenatal genetic diagnosis and so forth. Um, I guess I would say two things um, in response to uh, Vardit. One is the, um, I did, she's absolutely right, of course, that we have no idea how to, um, how to create, a, how to design a, a smarter baby or a taller baby or even uh, estimates now range about out of sort of 20 to 25,000 human genes. Um, the current estimates I've seen are uh, at about on, on the order of a thousand of those genes, one in, you know, about one in 20 genes uh, influences intelligence somehow. Uh, it's not clear that the separation of genes and environment is actually how biology works. And so um, there's a risk, one of the risks that I see looking at this from a long-term historical point of view over a couple of centuries is the, is the public effects of um, the, the, the social importance of, of these anxieties that we're talking about. The fact that we cannot do it, but people believe that we can, um, has, that has social and ethical ramifications itself, right? And um, so these are questions of, of um, accurate science communication, of myth busting, um, you know, and, and desensationalizing the, uh, the, the science where we can. Um, the, I guess the other thing I could uh, say right, right now in the immediate response is um, that the, I agree uh, that, that we should be, that the, that the, the important aspects of, of um, you know, if we were going to edit embryos, we should be thinking about what diseases we can address profitably. You know, most, and, and let's face it, most of those diseases, if we're talking about um, embryos and, uh, and future human beings, as, as Hank started us with, you know, most of those can be effectively and easily um, prevented with uh, prenatal genetic diagnosis and, uh, and abortion. Right, and so in most cases, it's probably not going to be practical to go in and just, you know, oh, I love this embryo, all of it, it's got all the right genes except for that one SNP that I want to fix. Uh, it's not, uh, it doesn't, it, it doesn't work like that. Um, the other thing is, but the the line, I think, you know, most people, many people anyway, are uncomfortable with the idea of enhancement, but the uh, and and our and most people are in favor of the idea of, of using the techniques to, to prevent disease. But the problem is the line between therapy and enhancement is really blurry. Um, I, I like to use the example of, of human growth hormone, right, uh, which can be used therapeutically if uh, if someone is of um, considered to be of uh, you know, ex extremely short stature. Now, one has to note that um, in some cases, uh, conditions like achondroplasia, uh, achondroplastic dwarfism, uh, can, like like deafness, 
may be actually a desirable trait in, in certain communities. So we have to keep that in mind. But if you are thinking of a child as, you know, sort of pathologically short, okay, you can say that's a therapeutic application of human growth hormone. Um, then what if the child is, is, you know, quite below normal, in the normal range, but the very bottom end? Well, you could say there, there are, you know, there are, there are social costs to that. And I would like to give my baby, uh, you know, every advantage to succeed, every chance to succeed. Uh, so I'd like him to be, you know, normal head or, or tire, taller or her. Uh, and, you know, then you're in grayer area. That's a, it's a different kind of therapy, surely, right? Not so much medical as psychological and social. And, you know, where exactly, how much is too much growth hormone? Is, are you then going to say to the, to the parent who's, child is uh, is going to be a normal height that I want to give my child every advantage. And, you know, um, uh, like um, Julian Sabalyescu says the, you know, procreative beneficence, we have a responsibility to provide the, our children with the best genetic environments that we can. Um, where do you draw that line? How much growth hormone, where does the growth hormone become, go from therapeutic to enhance, to enhancement? Um, so these are, so the fuzzy lines between some of these categories is also where some of the big ethical issues um, really, you know, that's really where the, the, the rubber meets the road and where we're gonna have to have, I think, um, really serious conversations to hash these things out pretty much on a case by case basis in many cases. So I'd like to pick up on a couple of things from both Vardit and Nathaniel. Um, Bardit said something that I say all the time, even though I'm about to criticize it, which is we need to decide, we need to figure out, we need to do this, we need to do that. But of course, we also have to ask, who is the we? Is the we individual parents? And if it's individual parents, is it individual parents of normal height? Or is it individual parents where both parents have a chondroplasia and are very are little people? Is it individual parents with good hearing? Or is it individual parents who are deaf? And if it's not individual parents, but it's society as a whole, how do we do that? Uh, Vard, it's actually, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that this issue of serious disease versus non-serious disease on the one hand, or big risk versus acceptable risk, unacceptable versus acceptable risk, just as Nathaniel's right that the line between enhancement and uh, treatment gets very blurry, by the way, on the height issue, the current medical standard is two standard deviations below the mean. So basically, if you're in the lowest five, per, five percentile of height, you can get treated with human growth hormone, regardless of whether we know why you're so short. But that's obviously not a, a really compelling number. They picked it because five is a nice number, right? So we do see places that have tried to do the, uh, go in a more organized way. The UK has a very um, complex system of regulation involving something called the Human Fertilization and Embryology Authority, the HFEA. There's nothing in this discourse can avoid acronyms. Everything's acronyms here. Uh, and the HFEA actually decides what diseases you can do pre-implantation genetic diagnosis for and which diseases you can't. And if you can't, if they decide you can't, what happens in many cases, at least to parents with enough money, is they come to the U.S. to get it done. 
because the U.S., as Vardit said, has no regulation on what can be done. It's a matter of choice between the individual IVF clinic and the parents, the parents with money, at least. And so, you know, Vardit, I think, is, is rightly focusing on what both Vardit and Nathaniel are talking about, treatment versus enhancement. In the U.S. now, there is no such enforceable line. And if you can find a clinic that is willing to do something that's enhancing, now, granted, there's very little we can do and almost nothing legitimately that we can do with respect to intelligence or sports ability or music ability or math ability or all those. We could probably can figure out light eyes versus dark eyes and light hair versus dark hair. But which versions of light hair or dark hair or light eyes or dark eyes we can't figure out. In the US, all you need is parents, money, and a clinic that's willing to try. And that's, I think, something the US at a social and governmental level needs to address. Bardeen? I can pick up on a few things from oh, there. Sure. I'm sorry. No, guys, uh, so Bardeen got her hand up uh, first, actually. Go okay. Ahead. <laughs> I love how this conversation is flowing. So directly following up on Hank's last words, um, who the we is, is obviously the question. Um, so we decided, we and my research team, decided to gather one possible group of we. We gathered experts from various uh, disciplines and also people who live with genetic conditions. And we asked them to discuss what Sirius is to them. And we discovered something very interesting. At the level of the individual conversation, conversations, for example, that patients or parents are having with clinicians about prenatal testing, about what justifies going through IVF in order to do, in order to test embryos, people resist hard definitions. They want the understanding of Sirius to remain something very personal, very subjective, uh, because, you know, we have different, uh, we come with different stories to, the, to these decisions. Um, for example, if several women in the family died of breast cancer, having an embryo with increased risk of this disease, even though it's later in life, even though it's just a risk, uh, you know, you have resistance to that because you're traumatized by what you've lived. Whereas for another person who's not familiar with the disease, Oh, it's just risk. It's not necessarily that this child will have it. And in any case, it's going to be much later in life. So, you know, it's, it's just not that threatening. So the understanding of what is serious is contextualized, is cultural, is personal, subjective. And people want it to remain that way. They don't want the government to tell them that this does not deserve to be screened because some, you know, <laughs> political body decided it's not serious enough. However, there's another context where we have to make decisions as a, as a society. What will be allowed or banned? What will be offered to patients or not mentioned? What will be funded or people will have to pay out of pocket? These are decisions we make as a society. And for these decisions, we must come to an agreement, even on questions that are so complicated that maybe at some level they should be left to individual decision making. So I just want to add that layer of, layer of complexity to our conversation. If I could just add a few points, uh, and again, great conversation. So in answer to Vardit's earlier comments about why such attention to uh, IQ and for which diseases, um, uh, first of all, it was quite interesting that the National Academy of Science with the Royal Society 
address this issue of which diseases uh, uh, they thought once uh, CRISPR for uh, embryos is safe enough, uh, it should be used. And they actually came up with several categories. So they tried to define this, but I think the ways they did it themselves raised questions. So they said, uh, well, if both parents or if one of the parents has uh, both genes that are autosomal dominant, as they say, for a serious condition like Huntington's disease. So if someone had both parents with Huntington's disease, which is a fatal disease that for which there's a very predictive gene, they thought that uh, and uh, for, for in that situation, uh, it would be permissible. They thought that if uh, both parents were, uh, quote, homozygous for uh, a recessive disease, so both parents had sickle cell disease, or both parents had cystic fibrosis, then it would be acceptable. The problem is, and they gave another example as well, which is if both parents were homozygous for different diseases that were autosomal dominant. So both parents had genes for uh, uh, early onset Alzheimer's. The problem is though, that if both parents, these are extremely, extremely rare conditions, but I think the reason they were putting them forward is because there's a certain technological imperative. So I think it's not only the media and the public that's interested in how do we enhance children, like uh, uh, how do we increase IQ, but I might, I'm concerned that scientists themselves or that there are some scientists and researchers at least who feel we have this technology, let's use it. This is what we've done in the past. We have technology and so let's go ahead and use it. Uh, so for instance, with those cases, uh, if both parents have Huntington's disease, uh, they're probably not gonna be able to raise the kids well, which is raises another question. They probably won't live to reproductive age if they have Huntington's from both their parents. Uh, same if, if they have, uh, both parents have sickle cell, again, it may be hard for them to reach reproductive age. So these are very hypothetical situations, but the fact that they were put forth by the National Academy of Science and the Royal Society, I think shows that there's uh, pressure to leave the door open for scientific research in this area. And I think that raises ethical questions itself. I'll just add a few other things, which is one is, uh, who the we is, at least the United States, uh, the example here, I think, is that we is who's going to pay for it, right? So in this country, I think uh, the ART, the assisted reproductive technology industry, as I mentioned, is seen as the Wild West uh, because it's paid for mostly out of pocket. So if you can afford to, uh, 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 you know, pay to have the breast cancer mutation looked for in your embryos and those embryos that have it screened out, you get to do it. And again, this raises questions of justice, et cetera. Uh, similarly, there are other, uh, uh, in, in Western Europe, uh, PGD is banned in some countries or it's very limited which cases can be uh, covered because the national health insurance is covering it. And so they have more of a say, I think, in what ends up happening. Uh, so uh, again, just a couple of other thoughts to throw in the conversation. Uh, I, I think again, the 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 fact that the uh, in this country the assisted reproductive technology is monitored by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, which is a guild uh, uh, of those doctors, uh, they come up. They have an ethics committee. They come up with guidelines. They're not always followed. One problem in the U.S. is that if we did have guidelines and regulations, there's concern among many researchers that the issues would be taken over by the religious right and by pro-lifers. So they may say, for instance, you can't do any PGD, uh, or they may get involved in other ways in preventing either infertile people from uh, accessing these treatments or from PGD being used for getting rid of 
diseases, someone has Huntington's disease and they want to screen out the embryos, there may be legitimate uses of PGD, which may they then be shut down as well. So we're living in a precarious political time in some ways for the, the political body of our country to take these issues on. One quick note on what Robert just said. Uh, in the US, you also have the issue of, is it a federal question or is it a state by state question? And this kind of regulation typically is state by state. I imagine you could probably construct a constitutional federal statute, though it might be a bit of a stretch. I think you'd have to use the interstate commerce clause. Uh, but um, if you think of 50 states, each with their own different regulatory schemes and the likelihood that Mississippi or South Dakota would have a different scheme from New York or California, it gets, um, gets very complicated very fast. Just quickly, we already have that with the problem of gestational surrogacy. So people quote renting wombs, as it said. Uh, California has a large industry. New York just voted to do our Governor Cuomo, the late governor or the our recent governor, <laughs> former governor Cuomo recently uh, put it in place. But it varies too, state by state by state in all kinds of ways that lead to complexities. People having children born in other states, et cetera. I think he's only been declared politically dead, not legally dead. Right. Sorry about that. <laughs> I wonder if you would, we would all agree, and please don't if you don't, uh, that in many of these instances, there's a, a bit of an arbitrary, there needs to be a certain amount of arbitrariness and where the cutoff may be. I mean, we kind of returned it over and over again. And um, I think that doesn't necessarily mean certain bodies shouldn't try to create a cutoff, but that perhaps it should be something that's open to revision over time what have you. I don't know what you all think about that, if that's true or not. I'm willing to jump in. I mean, I, I think this follows from what Nathaniel was saying that often in medicine, we think of diagnostic categories as being very clear. But in fact, to a certain degree, we construct these notions. Uh, what is serious disease? Uh, even what are the boundaries of disease? One is someone uh, everyone faces some anxiety and depression at some point in their life, but one is someone quote unquote clinically depressed or need treatment for anxiety, et cetera. Uh, and so uh, nature is complicated, but we try to apply these rigid categories. And in some ways uh, it may not always be possible to do so. It, it was raised that in the case of the uh, babies in China that he got involved with that, of course it was an attempt to prevent HIV infectivity in those children, but many of the critics said, well, there's uh, triple antiretroviral uh, therapies and this is not a, a, a death sentence as it had been many, many years ago. I wonder if the response would have been different if HIV was still the sort of fatal illness it was you know, 25 years ago. Um, I think it's fascinating to see how the ethical discussion, reflection, and even guidelines and recommendations change over time. Exactly, Gerald, in response to what you said. We learn more about the technologies, our social perceptions of what justifies certain interventions changes. For example, because we didn't have a treatment and now we do, or because we realized that something is actually more detrimental than we thought. Um, and it's just an opportunity to kind of plug in uh, another, you know, more general point, which is that the bioethical um, conversations that we're having, uh, sometimes the public expects us as bioethicists to make arguments, come up with a position, tell everybody what to do, 
you know, whether it's individual patients or governments and uh, be done with it. Uh, but we roll with the punches and the punches again can be um, the evolution of science and what we know, uh, the accumulation of data and the evolution of social values and norms. Look at the end of life debates uh, that uh, uh, all countries are going through over the past decades and how we change legislation as our social values change. Um, so I think when it comes to these uh, questions that are inherently societal, what the next generation is going to look like is, of course, a personal question. What child am I going to raise? But it's inherently a social question of the face of future society. We have to also be responsive to the science and to where social values are at, uh, at a given time. And when I look at just the last six years of declarations and statements on CRISPR, you see that evolution happening right before your eyes. In 2015, there was an international summit and the general vibe was definitely no, not ready, dangerous, stay away. Only four or five years later, the, the, you know, the, the last thing off the press is talking about a responsible translational pathway. All of a sudden, it's kind of obvious that we're going to translate this into the clinic, but how do we do it responsibly? Um, so we're seeing this evolution before our eyes. And what I'm struggling with, because I do a lot of media, is how to explain to the public that the fact bioethics you know, shifts and changes and evolves is not because we're unreliable or capricious or we don't know what we're talking about. It's because we're taking into account all these changing factors. Of course, during COVID, it was the big challenge. One day, public health tells you masks. The next day, it tells you, you know, we saw recommendations change. And we saw the bioethical debate change because we learned more about the virus. Um, and it's the same in this arena. We learn more about genetics. The public becomes better informed and educated. The conversation changes. The bioethics uh, evolves. And it's not easy to explain the sort of um, the backstory of how our conversations uh, leading to all these international guidelines and statements how these are happening and what they're informed by. It's a very complex process, but I think it's critically important that the public understands why we're sometimes shifting our positions towards more permissive or less permissive. So two things from what Varda just said, um, and one has to do with the role of bioethicists. Some people look to bioethics for advice. Some people hate bioethicists because they view them as acting like black robed judges who say, this is good. No, you go to hell. Um, in fact, I think you get three bioethicists talking about any issue and you end up with at least five different positions. So the we in bioethics is not a unified we as well. But with respect to gene, human germline genome editing, which is the fancy term for what Hu did. So it's editing human genes in a way that can be passed on to future generations. That's why it's different from just using gene therapy on me to fix a disease I've got, unless it gets into my sperm. And at this point, um, two uh, 30-year-old kids ago and a vasectomy, even then it wouldn't matter for me. But unless it gets into somebody's sperm or eggs, it's not going to affect, it's not going to change the genes of the next generation. So it's the germline, the eggs and sperm that make it, uh, that have raised this issue. I was part of some of those groups in 2015. Everybody agreed then that this was not ready for prime time because it was not proven safe and effective. 
And that we haven't really talked about of all the ethical issues, I think the least controversial and the most important is it's unethical to do something that's unreasonably unsafe or to sell people something that's unreasonably ineffective. Safety and efficacy, we think of as FDA and not really ethical, but they're, they're powerful, powerful ethical issues. And back in 2015, everybody agreed that this wasn't safe and effective, hadn't been shown safe and effective. Some people said, if it is shown safe and effective, there may be some times in which it could be used. And that's where Robert's point about the particular diseases that this commission picked out, they were picking those out because those were things that pre-implantation genetic diagnosis couldn't fix, but maybe this could. So some people say, if it's safe and effective, there are some ethical uses. Other people say, even if it's safe and effective, we should never use it because the germline is a line we shouldn't cross. Messing with our future generations is something we shouldn't do. That distinction remains, but it's become a little more exacerbated. I think the latest commission and the idea that we're moving to how to do it responsibly, those are the people who say, if it's proven safe and effective, but it hasn't yet been proven safe and effective, here are some ways it could be used. There's still the whole, there's a large set of people in bioethics and otherwise who say it should never be used at all for any reason. So the, I think the, the discussion has evolved, but what was a, a, a more obscure and more nascent division six years ago is becoming a little clearer now between those who say never and those who say, well, maybe under some circumstances, but right now everybody, almost everybody, says it's not proven safe and effective. It's not ready for prime time. You shouldn't try to make babies in something that's this, in a manner that is this risky. Nathaniel, I would I just say, a, I, I'm sorry. sorry, Robert. I think Nathaniel had a point you wanted to make. Oh, I was just going to say that um, the, the, the points that Hank just made are super important. I'm really glad you, you raised them so, so clearly and articulately. Um, I would say that it's important to remember that safety and efficacy aren't the only two ethical issues that are involved here. Um, and I think sometimes in discussing uh, these issues with um, people, members of the scientific community, um, the ethical discussions sort of end there. Once it's safe and effective, then, you know, then it's out of our hands. You guys deal with it. And there are, there are other important, important ethical questions to keep in mind while we're thinking about safety and efficacy as well. Um, for example, consensus, you know, what, what is there, how, you know, how do we decide that if there's a, a social consensus that this kind of thing should be allowed, the FDA ultimately is supposed to go, supposed to go uh, on along the, by the will of the, the people. We have to, we're going to have to rec reconcile with this, right? Um, and, um, that raises the, the question that actually comes back to some of um, Vardit's comments on the last comments, which is um, we're, we've been raising a number of issues around the issue of, of, of informed consent, right? Um, and we haven't, I don't think we've used that phrase yet, but we've all been talking about it. And uh, what counts as informed when we're talking about technologies that are so you know, so new, so powerful, and so complex, right, um, is really difficult to, to identify. We have, we, we take informed consent as kind of this um, uh, um, 
gold standard of ethical uh, ethical behavior. Um, and what does it mean to be informed? You know, if you do a, uh, a, a if you if you take a twenty three and Me test, they um, they can send you back. There's a there's a, a a set of SNPs that apparently are correlated with an increase in seven points, seven IQ points, right? And um, I don't know the name of the gene. Maybe some of you you do, uh, uh, but there's um, but, but this is what people are told. And then as, as I'm sure everybody in, on the panel is well aware, people mistake probability for certainty, right? People don't understand probability. Uh, you've got a, a polygenic score that says you're, you know, um, 80% less likely to finish college than someone with, uh, you know, a higher polygenic score. People think, oh my God, my kid's going to be going to be dumb, going to drop out of high school. What do I do? It's probably going to be more inclined toward criminal behavior and and drug use and all sorts of bad things that correlate with low, you know, lower educational attainment or years in school. So there's some really important issues here, you know, around the question of informed consent and the informed part. Um, what what counts as informed when we're talking about genetics and these complex behavioral traits. Not, now I'm going beyond at the moment, you know, uh, sim relatively simple cases like Alzheimer's disease or even cystic fibrosis and thinking more about say uh, mental traits, um, uh, schizophrenia or, uh, or, or, or uh, mental retardation or depression, things that are extremely complicated biology, uh, biologically, as, as we've said. Um, people will be told that you can, you know, you can get people to tell you that, that they can give you the, the genetic answer to your likelihood for schizophrenia. And no matter how often they say, this is just a probability, people think, oh my God, you know, my child's going to be schizophrenic. So we have to, there's some really important issues here with the question, questions surrounding informing the public. People can't make good decisions. We need to let people make their own decisions. We can't, we're obviously not going back to a state run eugenics program, but any kind of, um, you know, liberal sort of program of, of allowing individuals to make these kinds of decisions hinges upon being actually informed. And what that means is far from clear when we're talking about complex traits. Oh, I'm sorry, Robert, I think had a question first. Yeah, just a few thoughts. Uh, I'm, on, I'm from my phone because the, the link didn't work for my computer. So it's, it's hard to raise hands exactly, but um, uh, a few thoughts. So one is, I think, uh, just to get back to the issue of risk. Uh, a problem is that uh, risks themselves are not always clear. We're talking about potential future risks. And so in, we need to weigh not just the benefits of using the technology, what the risks will be. And as mentioned, some of the reports that have come out have said, you know, when it's safe enough, safe enough is not a black and white line. Uh, to know uh, that the procedure is safe enough may mean following people for a generation or two. In other words, if we create a child using this technology, we want to see that there are not adverse uh, effects on that child and perhaps that child's child, for instance. Uh, 
And uh, I think there are even in other kinds of research, the FDA has gotten to controversy sometimes in terms of deciding when the benefits are sufficiently, uh, 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 you know, out, are sufficiently outweigh the risks, whatever they are. So it's even there, there's some subjectivity involved. The issue with genes is important because I think, as Nathaniel was saying, uh, we still don't know a lot about genes, or rather, there's still a lot we don't know. Uh, so even with IQ, for instance, as mentioned, my understanding is from scientists I trust that uh, among the however many, uh, there have been hundreds certainly of genes looked at for IQ, uh, the one that's been most powerful I've heard gives you so just one extra point on your IQ test. Uh, so again, many, many genes involved. And another problem is there's a a sociologist uh, whose work I admire, Peter Conrad, who wrote a paper called Why Has the Gene for Alcoholism Been Discovered Five Times? And it turns out that five times the New York Times reported the gene for alcoholism has been discovered. Uh, and only, of course, to have it reported somewhere buried in later pages uh, several months or years later that, in fact, uh, that was not replicated. So there's a long history of claims for genes being associated with traits and diseases uh, that are not replicated. Because if we look at uh, a group of 100 people who have a disease and a group of 100 people who don't, and we look at literally millions of genes, we're going to find some genes that are present in the one group, but not the other. And some researchers may say, well, that's the cause uh, when it's not. In terms of informed consent, I think it gets even trickier when we're talking about designing future people. Uh, obviously they can't consent. So there have been cases, some apocryphal, some reported where deaf parents, for instance, have said, I wanna use PGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis to have a deaf child. Or dwarf parents have said, I wanna create a dwarf child because we feel these are not disabilities and we feel that this is the child we want. Uh, and again, there too, obviously the child can't decide for him or herself. The child's not yet been born. Um, which I think raises the stakes even more because there may be doctors who say, yes, I'm willing to do PGD for that purpose. The parents may want it. The child obviously is not there to say no. We also have so-called savior siblings where we have uh, a child or a parent who has a terrible disease uh, and needs uh, bone, uh, bone marrow transplants, for instance. So we can, through PGD, create a child who will be a match to create uh, sufficient uh, bone marrow to serve as a donor. Obviously that child doesn't have a say in it. So I think we need to be extra careful. And I think that's an important role for bioethicists uh, to play. Lastly, just to put it on the table, I think one of the concern here that hasn't been mentioned is eugenics, or it's been mentioned a little bit, but you know, when we've tried in the past historically uh, to alter the genes of our society, uh, it's led to disastrous results, obviously, with the Nazis. Uh, and eugenics actually started in the United States in the 1920s. Uh, there were efforts to, uh, as waves of immigrants came from Southern Europe, Eastern Europe. Uh, there were eugenics fairs in the Midwest to give awards not just to the biggest pumpkin and the best pig, but the best genealogy, uh, mean, read, you know, wasp genealogy. So I think, again, culturally, these are uh, I think forming a background of why there's such interest in improving genes and why we need to be careful. Nardeep. Um, taking the conversation, uh, first of all, uh, to another level, a higher level of complexity on one hand, and on another hand, from the science fiction to the here and now. 
So we talked about what if someday we can use CRISPR uh, safely and effectively and combine that capacity with uses that are socially very controversial. What are we going to do then? But there's something that we can already do now, and actually some private companies are beginning to sell it uh, to prospective parents, and that scares people like Hank and myself very much. Um, and that relates to the use of the well-established technology of screening embryos in vitro before deciding which one to implant, not to look at one gene that causes a disease, but rather to look at multiple genes that increase uh, in, to various degrees the risks of the more prevalent diseases, heart disease, uh, diabetes, diseases that you know pop at a populational level we're really trying to tackle as a public health issue. Now, if uh, you have, imagine that you have 10 embryos in vitro, and as parents, uh, you know that there's a genetic disease that is very serious running in your family, and the result of this test is, here are the far five embryos that will be sick as children, you know, they, they carry the gene, and the other ones will not suffer from this disease, now you choose. You know, it's a, it's a sort of uh, a simple decision because you tested from the beginning to screen against that gene, right? Now imagine that for each of those 10 embryos, you get a map that tells you for heart disease, the risk will be at this percentage for these kinds of issues. But uh, So that's a little higher over the general population. But for diabetes, you're actually going to get for the same embryos lower than the general population. Now let's look at a variety of, you know, 10 other diseases. And for each one, you're going to get a different risk score, but also with different nuances within that risk score. No embryo of the 10 will be perfect or clean or free of risks because we all, including us on the screen, we all carry problematic genes. Um, and so what are we going to do um, with the reproductive decision making when each time we screen embryos, we face what Han called at one point an avalanche of information that is extremely complicated, multidimensional, and we don't have an obvious choice because one of those embryos is perfect. They all carry some problem. Uh, so we're, we're really scared of such a future because on one hand, we always say, oh, more information is better. But at some point, more information will, uh, might actually become uh, a disaster. <laughs> How do we identify that point? I think it's important for people to appreciate that uh, what you're referring to, Vardit, is that there are certain diseases and many of the more common chronic diseases Many of them are very serious, have a, uh, they're polygenic. There's, there's not one or two genes that are associated with that condition. Uh, there was a, a seminal paper about schizophrenia some eight years ago that said they located at least 108 genes that were associated with some risk of schizophrenia. And uh, they were still trying to work out now to what degree these various and uh, numerous genes uh, have to interact with one another or be exposed to certain environmental uh, circumstances that would raise the risk of schizophrenia in that, in that individual. On the other hand, without doubt, many of those uh, 108 genes, and there probably are more, uh, may confer some increased fitness. They have a, there, there are qualities among those genes that are all over the gene pool all, for all of us and uh, which are probably good for us. So, right, it's, it's much more complex. The question then would be how do we educate people or who would be the 
who would be responsible for educating the public so that they would understand this or be able to make better decisions or not be offered the option to be uh, to make the decision. Hank, you're muted. You're muted. Hey, first time this week. <laughs> wow. That's pretty good. It's Saturday. I made it almost through the week without uh, messing up my muting. So two things. Um, one on this issue of the riskiness of particular genetic variations. And I'm, I'm really glad that Vardy brought up the PRS, this polygenic risk score point. There are some things, traits or diseases, where it is really, where a particular genetic variation is really, really powerful. So if you've got more than 40 CAG repeats on your Huntington and Jane, the only way you're not going to die of Huntington's disease is to die first from something else. And then every other disease, trait, condition, et cetera, seems to have some genetic influence, but it's really complicated. And so you got, if you did say whole genome sequencing, you could look at 6,000 or 10,000 different genes that are associated with particular rare diseases where special variations cause the disease with a high degree of confidence, either 100% or something like BRCA1 or 2 mutations, which increase a woman's risk of breast cancer to about 80%, increase the ovarian cancer risk from 1% to 30%, which in some ways is more significant, even though we think of it as a breast cancer gene. Uh, and then you've got these statistical things looking at variations, not even in individual genes or sequences, but at variations in markers, a million markers across the genome, and coming up with this very controversy and sticking machine learning algorithms or artificial intelligence on them and coming up with these numbers that are very scientifically uncertain, but are being sold to prospective parents already. So you've got the, the, the known high risk for some things genes, which may also have unknown benefits as well. And then you've got this machine learning algorithm constructed gamish of a whole bunch of different markers. That's an important distinction to keep in mind, particularly since we're seeing the commercialization of the latter one, I think way too prematurely. But then the second thing I wanted to say is to go back to Robert and the consent of the embryo. Uh, obviously you're right. On the other hand, I can't remember the consent form I signed saying, yeah, I'd like to be born. And by the way, I'd like to be born to this couple in Columbus, Ohio, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I'm a parent. Um, <laughs> they're 30 and 33, so we've survived not only childhood, but teenagers. Uh, I've survived, they've survived. Uh, we do all sorts of things without our kids' consent. It's our job. You know, you don't say, well, here are the advantages and disadvantages of you going to bed right now. And I want to make sure you fully understand them before you make the decision. Say, it's your bedtime. And what I swore I would never do before I had kids was do what my parents did. And of course I broke this oath. Why? After 17 different whys, because I say so, yeah. you know, at some point parents do those things. I do agree that the fact that the embryo can't consent makes it a higher raises the, the issues more highly, but at some point that's what parents not only do, but, that's our job in some sense and trying to mold these babies, these embryos, fetuses and babies into good, happy, loving people. Um, 
I do think, though, the deafness example in particular is really interesting. I have mixed feelings about whether a deaf couple should be able to choose a deaf embryo as opposed an embryo that would grow up to be deaf as opposed to embryos that wouldn't. I have no mixed feelings about whether a deaf couple should be able to, you know, artificially deafen a child that's been born with hearing. I'm not entirely sure that it's a defense that I have a defensible line there between birth, after birth, and before birth. In the second case, you call child protective services and the police. In the first case, it feels different to me, but I'm not sure how I come out on it. Robert, yeah, I know you wanted to make a comment even before uh, Hank's comments, so uh, go take it, take it away. Yeah, so I think that children are entitled to an open future, as it's been said. Uh, so we don't want to be making, it's one thing to say, this is your bedtime, you have to go to bed. Why? Because it's your bedtime and you have to go to bed. It's another thing to biologically sort of constrict uh, an otherwise open future that a child would have within the range of open futures that are available to children. So I think if we don't want to uh, forcibly impose risks on children uh, uh, when we otherwise don't need to, and I think that's sort of the spirit in which I think that uh, we need to be careful about. And I should say some of this can be addressed through research to see children who were selected to be so-called savior siblings. How do they feel about it? We don't know. Do they feel, I feel great. I was created to be able to manufacture bone marrow for my sibling or my parent, or they may feel what a pain in the butt. I mean, I were pain in the hip. I'm being, you know, having a, a needle shoved in my hip every uh, few months to extract bone marrow. So again, I think empirical data can help somewhat uh, think about some of these issues. I wanted to come back to the issue with understanding genetics also though, because I think one, uh, uh, um, one problem is that as Hank said, uh, commercialization is playing a huge role in this space. And as Vardit mentioned with companies that are selling uh, sort of polygenic risk score tests to parents and to physicians. Uh, there's a lot of money to be made here, by, or companies are making a lot of money. And so they're often, I think, the ones pushing the agenda, even when it may not be in uh, the consumer, the patient, the prospective parent's best interest. Uh, and this affects uh, not only uh, prospective parents and patients, but providers too. So there are tests being sold to psychiatrists now, and psychiatrists are buying them, genetic tests, uh, to predict the risk of someone being schizophrenic. Uh, and the report comes back, and it's also available to consumers as well. They can have this test that you have an increased or decreased risk or increased or normal risk of schizophrenia. And what increased means is that your risk goes from 1%, if it doubles, to 2% which means that whereas normally the average population risk is say 1% of schizophrenia, if you test positive for this gene, it doubles to 2%. Well, people may just see you have twice the risk of schizophrenia and get scared uh, seeing the so-called relative risk without understanding that the absolute risk means that the, the chance goes from 1% to 2%, that is, is there's a Otherwise, a 99% chance you won't have schizophrenia to a 98% chance you won't have schizophrenia. So I think we need to educate the public about statistics, about math, about science in general, not just regarding this, but in overall. And I think this is an area that has also not gotten as much attention as it should, and that I think would help us be able to deal with this in other areas where questions of our use of technology comes up. Nathaniel? 
Yeah, following up on, on Robert's comments, um, I wanted to raise the question of the, the ethical issues surrounding the free market. Um, the, you know, our, we have a, a very laissez-faire uh, attitude toward economics in this country. And there's, um, the, and, and as, we're, as someone said earlier, there's, uh, there's basically an unregulated market for, for PGD. And there's also an unregulated market for genetic testing, for, um, for, for genetic entertainment, for you know, spitting in a tube and getting <clears throat> a report for, uh, for, for you know, just about any trait you can, you can name uh, or, or behavior, you can get someone to tell you, you know, g- give you one of those risk scores, right? And um, there's, so there's a whole lot to be said about about that, maybe I'll come back to that later. Save that for for later in the conversation. But I did want to raise the question of uh, of the, the the ethical issues surrounding the free market, where a lot of decisions are made that we would oftentimes put under the heading of informed consent that are in fact strongly affected by things that we know have big psychological. Uh, exert large psychological pressure like advertising and and peer pressure and so forth where um so if you're marketed you know a a a test that you know promises to tell you what your your iq is going to be what your children's or diseases are going to be what what so, so forth and so on there's not really much you know there are only very broad outlines, uh, you know, guidelines about what can be said uh, and what can't. And I'm not an economist, so I mostly want to raise the question and, and uh, see if, if uh, the rest of you had thoughts on the, on the marketing aspects of the new genetic technologies. Vardit, you want to respond to that? Yes. So uh, one technology that we haven't talked about uh, so much yet and is actually one of the fastest spreading technologies with millions and millions of women around the world using it, even though it's only been around for about a decade, is a new way of testing fetuses during the pregnancy, but early on and without invading the the uterus and causing a risk of miscarriage just by a simple blood test of the pregnant woman. And this is a technology that we call non-invasive prenatal testing, another acronym, Hank, N-I-P-T. and the reason I want to bring it up is that um, my uh, my research group has done a lot of thinking about the uh, ethical and social dimensions of this technology. And we've been talking to pregnant women, to families, and especially to families raising children with trisomy 21 or Down syndrome, because this is one of the main conditions that this technology targets. And what we're hearing is that sometimes, um, you know, Nathaniel talked now about uh, unconscious uh, mechanisms, how we respond to societal pressures, to economic pressures. But some people are telling us that they're very conscious of these pressures. For example, they say, I would love to welcome into our family a child with uh, Down syndrome, but society will not provide me with the support mechanisms that I need. What happens to my child when I'm uh, too old to take care of him or her? Uh, I don't want the child to become a burden on their siblings. Uh, we won't have enough financial support. So there, sometimes the same pressures that uh, Nathaniel mentions are very explicit in people's decisions about terminating certain pregnancies 
not because they think that the condition in itself is, as we said, very serious or the quality of life will be so terrible that they don't think it's a life worth living, but because they feel society would either not support their decision or mm -hmm. that they would be judged and criticized. Um, so when we say informed consent, what about free consent? When are we actually free to mm -hmm. make these decisions knowing that we live in a society that would support us and our child uh, because it's a society that uh, has diversity, that uh, appreciates diversity, that has a high degree of tolerance towards difference, or are all these technologies gradually closing up what we consider to be acceptable so that only, you know, Savalesco's best children uh, deserve to be born and the others, you know, will be, uh, uh, parents will be judged for even having them. And the last point I want to make today is a story. Um, a nurse once came to me after a talk that I gave about this technology, about NIPT, and said, you know, I'm coming back from, uh, from a shift now. And we were in the ER. A couple arrived, arrived with a very young child uh, suffering from a disease. And the first thing I heard the doctor tell them is, you didn't test? What did the doctor mean? Didn't you test this uh, fetus before it was born? to find out that it had this disease and therefore terminate? What was implicit in the question? Why am I even seeing this child? This child shouldn't be here. So the first reaction the parents get when they rush to the hospital with a sick child is, your child shouldn't even be here. We have technologies in place to screen out this child before birth. Why are you creating a burden on me and on society? And that's my uh, last word of caution because all these technologies can push us into that corner and that's my greatest fear. Hank, I think you had a comment also. Yes, and I'm actually not muted. Um, so uh, really three quick things. First, I think Nathaniel's question about the role of the free market is a very important one. And particularly the role of the free market and a, an increasingly constitutionally protected world of advertising where the Supreme Court has held more and more so-called commercial speech is actually protected by the constitution. We are one of only two countries in the world that allows advertising of prescription drugs. Um, I don't know why New Zealand does it, uh, but I think I know why we do it because it makes a lot of people, including a lot of media outlets, a lot of money um, and it sells things. And I think, I, I think the problem of consent is not just a problem of advertising, but the two exacerbate each other. Second, the disability points, and, and Varda, I'm, I'm glad that you, you just talked about it at some length. To me, they're the hardest issues in this whole area. You know, there's one set that gets a fair amount of attention because it's kind of you know, uh, titillating or exciting, and, and that should the deaf parents be able to have deaf kids or should achondroplasic parents be able to have little people, children. It's, it's significant. I, I don't want to... Uh, dismiss the importance of that, but it's relatively minor in terms of the percentage of the population involved. There are a lot of disabilities out there. Um, and I had a, uh, I was on a panel once with a Stanford graduate, a woman with something called spinal muscular atrophy, uh, genetic disease. It comes in a variety of different degrees <laughs> of seriousness. Uh, some are fatal early. Hers had her in a wheelchair from about 18 on uh, and we were talking about this stuff in a panel and she said, well, what you people are saying is I should never have been born. And I sure as hell didn't want to say, yes, that's what we're saying. 
So, of course, I sort of intentionally um, sidestepped and said, well, no, what, what people on that side are saying is that you should have been born, but without your disease. And she, being a very smart person, immediately said, well, without my disease, I would not have been me. I don't know where we go with that. I mean, that's sort of the, if, on the one hand, I don't see any problem with preventing the birth of children who have just really inevitable, nasty, awful diseases, Tay-Sachs disease or Lesch-Nihan, where children are intellectually disabled and at the age two, they start chewing on their, on their hands and feet and disfigure themselves. These are terrible things. But when you get into the, the grayer area, I can see why parents wouldn't want to have a child with SMA, but should we stop them from doing that? because of the people who have SMA or wouldn't want to have a child with Down syndrome? Should we stop them from doing that because of the people who have children with Down syndrome or the people who have Down syndrome? And not just the psychological effect on them of knowing the world thinks I shouldn't have been born, but the shortage, the, 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 the diminution of research funding going into the area, physicians specializing in their treatment, social support for their condition. All of those are real problems that the ability to avoid the birth of people with certain disabilities brings to the people who've already been born or will in the future be born with those disabilities. And then finally, um, earlier this week on Wednesday, uh, we saw pretty much the, heard pretty much the death knell for Roe v. Wade sounded at the US Supreme Court. Uh, the only question I think at this point is when in June they come out with the decision it will eliminate Roe entirely or just say, well, right now we're just saying up to 15 weeks, uh, you can ban it uh, after 15 weeks and we'll deal with the others later. I think there's a really interesting question about how the death of Roe v. Wade is going to affect the assisted reproduction field, industry, whichever you prefer, and the use of genetics and the possible uses of genetics uh, afterwards. So there's a, a big one to throw on the table. Robert, uh, you have a, another follow-up? Oh, yes. Let me, let me, Robert had a question he wanted to, or a comment he wanted to make, and I want to let him do that, and then we could open up the floor yeah. to some questions. Great. Uh, just a few quick comments. Interestingly, in terms of uh, the pro-life movement and, and the religious right, when PGD was developed, that is screening embryos, uh, those clinicians were concerned that the religious right might shut them down. And in fact, what happened is that people on the right uh, felt, gee, if I can afford to have a better child, I should have the right to do so. So what's interesting is that a certain libertarian uh, attitude prevailed that has allowed some of the things that we're actually concerned about, uh, as well as potentially some benefits, beneficial things like PGD out there. So I think uh, it's hard to break what's going to happen, though I certainly worry a lot about the future of Roe v. Wade, uh, as, as Hank was just saying. Just on NIPT, the sort of uh, way of uh, looking at the genes of the fetus just by taking blood from the mother's arm, one uh, issue that come up, comes up with that, which is what Vardy was talking about a few minutes ago, uh, that has a lot of uh, uh, folks I know concerned, is that uh, those tests often give the results of, say, 70 different diseases. And the actual sort of validity of those tests for all seven diseases has not been determined. So 
patients, again, are coming in with these reports, look at all uh, the diseases, the 70 diseases that the test showed that I have, and they say to their, uh, their OBGYN, what do I do with this information? And often uh, doctors themselves are not sure, uh, you know, should I abort the fetus or not, given it that it has a, say, you know, 30 or 40% chance of having whatever the disease is, because these are not always predictive tests, unlike in the case of Downs, where we're much more able to predict it. So again, a lot of confusing issues. I would just say with the free market question that Nathaniel raised, uh, we have a free market, but we also have an FDA. And we do have concerns about protecting consumers, protecting patients, protecting their rights as well. And I think for those who are not familiar with bioethics, this is a lot of what bioethics is, is often trying to weigh conflicting principles and conflicting issues. Well, this has been a very uh, stimulating talk so far. I hate to jump in. Um, but we but do we have, have some questions. questions. I think Beverly, Beverly, do you want to start, start with a question? question? Yes, uh, it, it, for, for all these considerations, it seems the genie is really out of the bottle though. And it's going to affect family, mm. psychology, sociology, theology, etc. And one sort of non-sci-fi horror is you could imagine a child saying, mommy, why mm. didn't you mm. take the gene out for my ADHD? I mean, there are going to be so many different kinds of reverberations about what one didn't do, even from the child's point of view, as well as what one did do. So we're in for quite a ride. But thank you. You, you are all just marvelous. I really appreciate the thoughtfulness and consideration. Great. Thanks, thank Beverly. You, Beverly. All right, all Alex, Alex, do you want to... Wanna... Uh, Beverly, I think you have to thank you. So Alex, you want to... Uh, start to read some of these questions and see what the panelists have to say in response. Uh, yeah, and um, everyone watching on Zoom and YouTube, uh, on Zoom, you could write in questions on the bottom panel. So you see a button says Q&A, and then on YouTube, just you could write it in the comments. So from Al Daniele on YouTube, um, they're wondering, I mean, given everything you talked about, do you think there's anything you could add when you look at trauma? So any given the intergenerational effects of PTSD via epigenetics. So do you think there's any comments you could add given that frame? I know you've talked about every other possible disease or what have you that could occur. So anything to add there? I would just say that for most psychiatric, can you hear me? Uh, yes. For most psychiatric conditions, uh, uh, the genetics are much more complicated and the gene environment interactions are much more complicated. Uh, so it's easier to find genes for cancer, say, than it is for most psychiatric conditions, including PTSD. So I think we're just, uh, the genetics of that, I think, are far away from our understanding at the moment. And I'd add, I think the questioner may have also been interested in the epigenetics, which is not so much the sequence itself, but the way the sequence gets expressed because of things that are above um, the, the sequence that determine when it gets when certain genes get used or not. The existence and extent of, of inherited epigenetic markers in humans is very unclear and very controversial. It's not, and it would really be very hard to test, for example, uh, the extent to which epigenetic markers may have some role in children of somebody with PTSD having issues. One thing that is quite clear, though, is we pass on things to our kids in lots of ways that don't have anything to do with our genes. And a parent with PTSD or a parent with a mental illness or a parent with a physical disability is 
changing those conditions are going to affect how the kid grows up. Uh, in a sense, this goes back to Robert's argument about an open future. Our, our characteristics as parents to some extent and where we're born and what country and what socioeconomic status and so on, these all close in our children's futures and affect our children's futures in ways that are usually much more important, except for the few un really unfortunate outliers who get some really nasty early onset genetic disease. These are much more important than what genes we pass on. I think also we might uh, have another panel some years hence to discuss the ethical uh, 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 confusion sown by epigenetic manipulation. Uh, that that technology is not really here yet, but it, it's coming. Okay, thank you, Yale, for that question. Next, we have Carol Gerson, who has a comment and a question. So the comment goes, I once asked a fertility doctor, to whom do you say no? And his answer was pretty much no one. And then her question, based on how she wrote in the Q&A part, I assume this is her question, um, was suppose one is not a consequentialist who is primarily concerned about unintended negative consequences of unregulated gene editing. How does the panel think about arguments from thinkers like Michael Sandel or William May that gene editing encourages us to use values appropriate for evaluating manufactured things to persons and that this undermines the basis for human dignity and equality, et cetera? Um, I think this throws us back to a distinction that Hank put on the table between those who think that gene editing is inherently a bad idea for a variety of reasons, but it's not about the safety or the efficacy. It's just that as a species, we should not start to meddle and mess up at the level of designing our own DNA. Here, I finally did work the, the work design into a, a comment. We should not try to intentionally design our DNA uh, either because you take a theological position that we shouldn't play God or because you think that it would never be safe enough or because you think deontologically there are certain things humans should not do because it violates human dignity. Those people have already made up their mind, right? So to them, it's not about where is the science going? What is the condition that we're targeting? What about off targets? When will we be ready for first in human clinical trials? To them, you know, the decision has been made. But I think if I look at, uh, you know, the community of thinkers, that's a minority. And the majority of bioethical thinking is about those questions that I just mentioned. Where is the science? How do we define safety and efficacy? And especially what genes do we want to target once it is safe enough? Um, so, you know, that, that, that minority that sees this as inherently uh, forever uh, something that should be banned there's no conversation there, right? It's not about anything that's going to change. It's just an in-principle position um, that, that shuts down the conversation about the technology. And I would just add, I agree with what Vardit said. Uh, uh, Hank early on mentioned uh, mitochondrial replacement therapy, which is that a small amount of human genes are not in the so-called nucleus of the cell, but in mitochondria. And uh, scientists have developed ways of uh, using another woman's uh, uh, sort of uh, mitochondria, so to speak, through mitochondrial replacement therapy. Uh, and this is um, altering the genes, arguably, of a future child to prevent terrible diseases. 
Uh, and I think that there is some distinction morally between using these technologies to prevent terrible diseases versus adding some IQ points or some of the other milder conditions that we're talking about. And I think that distinction uh, is something that a lot of people find helpful. So going back to the argument that Sandel and, and May made and that was referred to in the question, um, you know, I think Sandel makes that argument as well as it can be made. Uh, I don't personally find it very compelling or convincing in two ways. One, I look at people who were born as a result of in vitro fertilization, the same arguments about viewing children as a commodity, as a manufacturer, as a product were made 40 years ago with respect to IVF. I typically in the seminar, undergrad seminar I do these days, I have usually at least one or two people who are IVF kids. They don't seem different. They don't seem unloved. They don't seem viewed as a manufacturer. Um, as an, it's actually a, an empirical statement about how people are going to react to these sorts of technologies that I think that we have no evidence to believe it's that the technologies are changing the way people look at their children, viewing them as less gifts and more products to be perfectly designed and you know, return to return to manufacture if you know, to get your money back if it didn't work out right. The other side of it is, you know, parents have kids for all sorts of different reasons. Parents have kids because they need somebody to work on the farm. Parents have kids used to, and in some societies still do. Parents have kids to provide for them when they're old and infirm. If there's no social security, parents have kids because it seemed like a good idea at the time. Parents have kids without even intending to have kids. There are all sorts of reasons parents have kids. Whether this argument saying parents will view and treat their children differently as a result of this, um, I haven't seen any evidence for it. I don't find it compelling. Great. Alex, the next question. Uh, thank you, Carol. And I just want to add, um, my parents had me just so I could open up PDFs for them. I I'm kidding. <laughs> I know how to do that. Uh, I know how to do that. No, I believe that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so thank you, Carol. Then we have anonymous, sorry, hold on. We have an anonymous uh, questioner on Zoom. And they asked, is it even feasible to test the efficacy and safety of germline editing in an ethical manner? So let me take that on. I, I, I wrote a book about the CRISPR babies called CRISPR People that came out this past February. And there's a whole chapter devoted to, if you did want to try to prove it was safe and effective, how would you go about it? And you would go about it, I think, using the sort of things that the FDA normally wants, but putting particular focus and, and more than usual requirement for proof, given that you're dealing with the birth of infants who haven't been able to consent. One thing you would do is non-human animal studies, and you'd need more than mice and rats for this. I think you've got to use non-human primates, certainly monkeys, follow them for a couple of generations, look to see is and use large numbers, hundreds, because if you're looking for say a 5% problem, you're not gonna see it if you only use 10, and you may not see it if you use 20. So do germline editing in a couple hundred rhesus macaques and see what the results are in terms of the health of the babies, as well as the efficacy of the actual editing. Do human embryo studies where you modify the embryos and then you watch to see, watch them as long as you are allowed to, up to 14 days under current guidelines, maybe longer in the future. Uh, 
depends in part also on what jurisdiction you're in and see if they look normal, if they act the way, same way that normal human embryos act. But then at some point, you've got to hold your breath, cross your fingers, throw salt over your shoulder, you know, launch prayers, do whatever else you do and go to first, assuming everything, all that work, all that preclinical work says, we don't see any real big issues here. You have to try it in humans. And you try it in a small number of humans who are very carefully studied. And typically, I think you would try it in the humans for whom the need seems most strong uh, and see what happens. Will you wait for 70 years? No. How long will you wait? That's a good question. It could well be that every baby born from IVF will drop dead at age 44 because Louise is now 43. No reason to think that they will, but we can't know until we wait it out. Nobody's going to wait that long. But yes, I think there, there are ways to try to try to not prove safety, not prove, not prove unacceptable risk. Proving a negative is always problematic. But there are ways to try to get some more confidence that this could be done in a relatively safe way, bearing in mind that safety is always a relative term. Hank, wouldn't you agree that those, those guidelines are not much different than the ones you might rely on for just drug development? Yes, many, no, many that's cases. right. Yeah. Although yeah. a problem with this is <laughs> it is not entirely clear whether or not those FDA rules apply to this kind of work. The FDA has taken the position that it does, going back to the early cloning hysteria. I uh, took the position in 1980, I'm sorry, in 2000, that uh, cloning would be a cloned human embryo would be a drug or biological product subject to FDA jurisdiction. That's never been tested in court. I think they probably should win on that, but I can certainly imagine a federal judge saying, wait, you're telling me that a human embryo is a drug? Get out of there. Where does it say that in the 1938 Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act? Robert. So it's not clear that, that legally FDA would have that power. I think it should, and I hope it does. And then I would just add, it. I agree with everything Hank said, but in answer to the question, I would also add, it's not clear that there is enough benefit to justify the risk yet. Uh, in other words, for what medical condition would we even do the things that Hank rightly says would need to be done? And I think that, as I mentioned, the report from the National Academy of Science saying, well, if both parents had Huntington's disease, that, that, that it's not clear that that ever happens in the West. Uh, and so, uh, again, it's good to keep an open mind, but uh, I think we need to be careful that we don't rush into this for the wrong reasons, which is capitalism sort of pushing us there. I think so we should one move example, on to the next question. I was well, going to think we should move on to the next question because we have a, quite a number of questions, I think, Alex, okay. am I right about uh, that? We just have two more. Uh, so, so, right. so let me, oh, let oh, me oh, follow oh, up oh, on Robert. I think one plausible example of a need would be a couple where both members have cystic fibrosis. The life expectancy for cystic fibrosis used to be under 10. It's now people in their 40s. Every decade, it seems to get a decade longer, which is a nice thing. It's still not a good disease. You don't want to have it. It's a real uh, problem to deal with, and life expectancy is shorter and uh, morbidity is higher. But people live into their 20s, 30s, and 40s, and some of them are going to be healthy enough that they want to have kids. And I think it's not irrational, to, uh, unrealistic to think that two people with CF will meet, bond, and decide they want to marry and have kids together, or not marry so, and have kids together. 
Um, they would say the only way we can have a child that would not have cystic fibrosis is to use genome editing. So I would just say, I don't know of any documented cases of people of a couple where both have cystic fibrosis wanting children. Maybe it's out there, but IVF docs I've talked to say this is a hypothetical, yes. Yeah. Uh, no known case to have happened thus far. Uh, not a good disease, but if people uh, have, if, if treatments are getting better for CF, there are people who, True. if someone's making it to 50, 60 with CF, uh, do we need to be getting rid of the disease? This gets back to the issue if it's uh, not that bad that people are making it to 60 and want to have kids uh, along the way, uh, should we be getting rid of it? So again, and, just And some who makes that decision, the parents or the government right, right. or yeah. the bioethicists? Yeah. I'm just saying we need to not think the about, bioethicists. you know, right, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. the relative risks and benefits and what would the benefits be, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Alex, next question. Um, yeah, so thank you, anonymous uh, viewer. Uh, this is from Charles Markovsky. And he asked, what's the current understanding of ALS genetically? Um, I could just add as an addendum to that. I, I know pathologically it has to do with um, ubiquitination problems. So ubiquinated proteins not being properly disposed of in the cells. And then the buildup of that leads to um, cell death. So anyone want to add on to that? I know a little bit about this. If somebody knows a lot about it, I would be happy to defer. But I think it's like a lot of diseases. A few cases are powerfully caused by a known genetic variation. In this case, it's a mutation in a gene called SOD2, sodium oxidase dismutase or something. Might be SOD1, I forget whether it's SOD1 or SOD2. And that makes up one or 2% of patients with ALS. There are a whole bunch of other genetic variations that increase your risk of ALS, but not enormously. And then there are a whole bunch of patients with ALS who have no genetic, no known genetic predisposition at all. Almost every disease, almost every common disease seems to fall into that pattern. Alzheimer's, there are some genetic mutations that give you a hundred percent chance of early onset Alzheimer's. It's about one person in a thousand carries them. There's a genetic variation that 20% of the population carries that doubles your risk of Alzheimer's. But most people with Alzheimer's don't have either of those risk factors. So ALS is partially heavily genetic with the SOD1 gene, partially weakly genetic with a bunch of other genes, and as far as we can tell, partially not genetic at all. And, and we're going to see that, more, we are seeing that more and more with disease. Alex, you wanna to get to the last question for us? Um, let's see if it's on YouTube. Okay, yeah, this is the last, uh question on Zoom, anonymous viewer asks, uh, how common is finding a doubling of maternal or paternal DNA when companies like 23andMe do testing? You mean a, a false paternity, is that? Uh, the person further wrote, I asked because I was found to be a half sibling to my sister and brother, although the most likely explanation is a different biofather. I've read that a doubling of one's parents' DNA is another explanation. I've not heard of a, I mean, 23andMe, as I understand it, usually if they say you're only a half sibling of someone you thought was your sibling, that the vast majority of those cases are due to so-called, quote, false paternity. That is that there are 
surprising number of people I've heard reports, a good 1% of the population, uh, they find that the uh, person they thought was their father was not their father. Uh, I should add, I wrote a book design, called Designing Babies, how technology is changing the ways we create children. Uh, and in that, I looked at people who were created through sperm donation or egg donation, and the vast majority of those people were never told by their parents they were created by sperm or egg donation. Most men don't want to say I was infertile, I was impotent. Uh, women also are afraid to say we created using someone else's egg. Their parents are afraid the child will love them less, though that turns out not to be the case. And so people are not told and are now finding out through 23andMe uh, that in fact uh, they were not uh, from the genes of one of their parents, but rather there was an egg or sperm donor used in some way. I think that's the most likely reason. Yeah, Bardeed, I think you had also a comment. Yeah, I just, it, it would be inappropriate to finish this uh, panel, this interesting conversation without noting the dangers of going through direct to consumer testing without understanding the potential things you might learn. People think of it as fun. You know, somebody will tell me how fast I metabolize caffeine or that I'm, you know, I have 5% indigenous that I didn't know about. Oh, that's curious, that's fun. But they don't realize that sometimes the results come with uh, disaster, with, with information that can be disastrous for family relationships, for their psychology, for their identity. So this is an interesting opportunity to mention a book that Hank edited that just came out. I received it, just received it in the mail. Oh, it's hard to see. It's called Consumer Genetic Technologies, Ethical and Legal Considerations. And in it is a chapter, a fascinating chapter about a family that went through this fun testing and found out that they have a half sister they never knew about. And it turns out their, their mother was raped as a young woman, had a child and gave up this child for adoption. And then decades later, the, the story emerges and throws the entire family dynamics into havoc and exposes a, a secret that the mother kept her whole life. So just this fascinating, fascinating example of things that can come up um, unintended. Um, uh, people don't think about this in advance. They just send out their DNA and think this will be fun. So a big, uh, you know, red flag and a warning to all of us before we just use this testing for fun to think through all the things that might happen. I, I feel the need to give a disclaimer. Uh, I was one of four co-editors on that book, along with Nita Farahani, Glenn Cohen, and Carmel Shakar. And I was clearly the one who did the least work. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's a good book, probably because I did so little work on it and it has a lot of chapters from great people, including, I think, uh, Barton. Ah, <laughs> bravo. Now, anyone have any uh, other sort of last comments they want to add? Yeah, I just want to get uh, Vicky Madden's comment on YouTube, just so oh, she knows sorry, that Alex. we're paying attention. It's just no, it's no question, just a comment. She just noted that um, when I think during one of the question answer responses, um, she noted that the issues raised about privilege are already visible. They move from an affluent area to a more socially mixed area, and they, they experienced an increase in people with Down syndrome and other conditions, and they sort of related that to affluent couples not having as many kids as the less affluent couples. So just want to thank Vicky for that.
uh, common? Well, I, I would just say it's affluent couples are more <clears throat> able to afford these technologies. I mean, IVF is expensive. Uh, insurance covers very little of it. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that's a major problem are the justice issues or the injustice issues and the fact that the gap these technologies are being used so far, at least in the US, in ways that I think unfortunately increase the gaps between the haves and have nots. Thanks. So I, it feels like we're getting toward the end um, and maybe it, each of us could take a shot at something we think is really important that hasn't been discussed. And I'm preemptively going to do that mm -hmm. because I'm on, a, I've got a, I've got a, I'm on a hobby horse right now. I think that our species has many characteristics, but one of the strongest is we do not lack for self-esteem. Uh, we are very species-centric and we are paying way too much attention in my mind to the effects of these technologies when they're used for human reproduction, which I think is going to lag in part because they're not going to be that useful. And in part because we won't take lots of risks. You know, We don't wanna take a lot of risks with babies. But with non-humans, we have the other 99.99999, a couple more nines percent of the species on this planet. We have the ability to make vast changes in the biosphere. We're doing it already. We've been doing it for a long time. The tools allow us to do it better. Um, we are much less concerned about the risks of deformities or stillbirths in cattle than we are in babies. We're still less concerned about it in mosquitoes, and we're not concerned about it at all in bacteria. Uh, we are going to remake the biosphere very quickly using these tools, and our regulatory mechanisms stink. Uh, that's where I think we should be spending more attention. Um, mm -hmm. And less of this on us. You know, the biosphere is not just about us, right. even though we like to think it is. Nathaniel, I think so that's my a... sermon for the end. Nathaniel, sure. um, yeah, first of all, just thank you, Hank, for for that comment. <clears throat> we didn't get at all into things like gene drives and, uh, and and environmental engineering, which maybe could be a topic for uh, a future conversation like this. Um, I guess. Um, if I were going to make two, if I two quick closing points just to raise a couple of issues that we didn't get to very much in this conversation that I think really are important for, um, for, the, for, the, uh, for everyone to consider who's thinking about genetic te technologies. Um, one is, uh, we've talked a lot about genetic engineering um, and we also mentioned it briefly at the beginning of polygenic scores, polygenic uh, risk scores or polygenic indexes. And I think genetic prediction is going to be just as important, if not more important, as far as having an impact on the everyday person's life um, and genetic engineering. And so, and there are a lot of really thorny, hairy uh, ethical issues tied up with predicting traits especially complex behavioral traits um, before they happen. And, and you know, the notion is, well, we could provide the, uh, a, a better environment or we could you know, do things that would mitigate any kind of uh, condition, whether it's you know, mental retardation or schizophrenia or you know, uh, lower 
predicted school behavior. So, so I would just urge people to, to pay attention to things, uh, to these ideas of genetic prediction as they come out through um, you know, direct to consumer uh, marketing and, and so forth. These are really important. And tied with that, uh, so we never really uh, talked today much about, about race. And I think there are some important racial issues tied up in, um, in a lot of these questions. For example, and some of them are hidden. Uh, it's not that obvious. For example, the, uh, the, the biobanks where the sequence is um, that people are, are using to do the big uh, genome-wide association studies and calculate polygenic scores and, and make all these predictions, whether it's disease or behavior or intellectual you know, capacity or whatever, um, it's still the case that the overwhelming majority of the sequence that's being used is uh, in, comes from people of European descent. And so we have no idea what the effects are, well, you know, what, what such a score would mean to someone of, um, of, of Hispanic or, or, you know, with immediate African ancestors or, or Asian. We have very, very little data on this. And so um, that's, I, I know some people who are trying to, uh, who are trying to address that. And that's important and uh, getting a, a more diverse, um, uh, uh, data set, more diverse data sets to work with. But the flip side of that is that that can can reify those um, bio, you know, those supposed racial boundaries and uh, and and make and make race racial differences seem more biological than they are. So, um, so there's some complex and, and often hidden uh, racial issues in, in, involved with this that I think. Are worth uh, worth bearing in mind. Great. Anyone else? I I would or Vardit or I'm I'm happy to say something too. Uh, sure. Uh, so I would say, uh, and I agree with everything that's been said. I think a major issue is education, need for public education uh, about a lot of these issues. And I think the point about race is extremely important. One problem I know I'm at Columbia, and we are, are one of the centers that are involved in the All of Us project to try to uh, uh, do whole genome sequencing on a diverse group of people. And it's been very hard to get people from certain ethnic and racial groups who've experienced terrible discrimination in the healthcare system to want to give their DNA to be studied. Uh, and uh, we need to uh, definitely have a more diverse uh, set of people uh, whose DNA we can uh, examine to see what genes are, put them at risk of disease, but at the same time we need to educate and work with these groups. And I think that uh, the scientific community has been trying, I think can try harder, but has not done a very good job. And I think there's a lot of understandable suspicion and wariness, as I said, given past abuses and discrimination. I think that's something we need to work on. Uh, Nathaniel's point about the genetic prediction, uh, here too, I think, uh, I agree, and I think at some point uh, in the near future, maybe 10 years from now, when we all go to see our doctor, our complete genome will be on in the medical record. Uh, and doctors will be able to say, you have genes associated with, say, increased risks of Alzheimer's disease. And there are major questions that we've not discussed, but as suggested might be 
great for future discussion on uh, do people want that information? How will they understand that? Especially when, again, these are, uh, 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 are not highly predictive genes. In other words, your risk of Alzheimer's may go up three times from say 5% to 15%, depending on your age or 15% to 45%. So these are partial numbers and we're not good uh, at thinking about this. Our brains are, did not evolve thinking about these kinds of complex numbers. And lastly, I would just say, uh, these are global phenomena. And so the question of who's gonna decide, it may be researchers and patients in a country uh, that is not one in which we are now sitting. Uh, as mentioned earlier, it was in China that the first uh, 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 CRISPR, uh, first use of CRISPR in human embryos occurred. Uh, it was then decided, okay, you can do CRISPR on embryos, but don't implant them into the womb. And then in China, again, uh, embryos were implanted into the womb. So it may be in a country that is not one of ours uh, where this moves forward. And I think that's important to be aware of and to try to think about ways to encourage as much cooperation with the kinds of guidelines that have come out and the kinds of ethical concerns that we've been talking about today. Marty? Thank you. Thank you, Hank, for inviting us to give sort of a concluding word. Um, we talked about plants and animals and adults, uh, but I think where bioethics is most concerned is in the area of reproduction, right? What children, these technologies allow us to have, the, the level of control that we can have over future children. And my last thought is this, we tend to think of having children as a profoundly personal choice. Uh, we need in light of these technologies to be acutely aware of how our personal choices accumulate uh, at a population level to create the society of the future. And if all of our choices start excluding certain individuals in a way that as a society, we have less um, tolerance for, di uh, for di diversity and for differences, I think we're paying uh, a terrible price, um, you know, as a species uh, for allowing these decisions to occur in the privacy of you know people's uh, you know own personal um, reflections without engaging with the societal implications. So I invite all of us to take this into account when we uh, you know um, have these very very private conversations uh, with ourselves, with our partners, with our family and friends um, about what uh, what it is that our personal decisions uh, imply uh, for the future of humanity. Great. Well, I want to just tell everyone here how thrilled I am with how wonderful this conversation has been and how enlightening. And I actually personally feel that to whatever degree there are and there must be open issues. I think in many instances, we outline the sorts of issues that should be open for discussion uh, politically uh, with one's doctor, with one's conscience. And I think it's fascinating to reflect that so far from uh, these sorts of technologies robbing us of uh, human dignity, um, I actually dialogues like this, I actually think enhance when they're as, as well thought out as the, these were today, they really enhance our human dignity. I think having the opportunity to have these conversations is, uh, uh, it, it's incredible. So I wanna thank you all again and uh, look forward to uh, our audience coming back to see us uh, for our next talk. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Thank fellow you. panelists. It was fun. Great. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.